This is the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, and this episode, Lessons in Teaching from the Princess Bride. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. This is Bonnie Stahoviak, and I am once again joined by Dave Stahoviak. Hello, Dave. Hello, Bonnie. Glad to be back. Nice to be back. So on my Facebook page, I have liked, among other things, the page for the movie, The Princess Bride. And the other day, I shared with them, with the people who I'm hooked up with on Facebook, the quote, you keep using that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. And it got a lot of traction. And so I kind of felt this inspiration. I thought we should build a podcast around the lessons on teaching from the Princess Bride. So that's what we are here to do today. There's so much in life that comes back to the Princess Bride. It is true. Throughout my life, there have been many analogies made to the Princess Bride. And so this is the, uh, this is the next one. And so, Dave, I remember you said you couldn't remember a tremendous amount from the movie, and that's okay because we are not going to quiz you. However, I will tell people who are listening, if you want to go to the show notes, that's at www.teachinginhighered.com slash three. This is the third episode of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast. So if you go there, you can link to that same Princess Bride page on Facebook, and you also can go check out their store. They have magnets for sale, which which I think is it would be great if any of our fridges actually were still magnetic. If anyone listening has a stainless steel fridge, you probably can't stick anything to it. But that's just such a shame. I miss fridge magnets. So many people were tuning into this episode just hoping, yes, wishing you were going to talk about fridge magnets. Yes. Well, in addition to that, you could play the Princess Bride party game. You're killing me. You could also <laughs> test your knowledge of the Princess Bride by taking the quiz. Questions like who played the grandson, which Dave, I don't know. Do you remember the the actor who played the grandson? I'm having a hard time remembering the details other than the main, main characters. It's been years since I've seen it, so I don't. Well, he was also in a television show, which was popular when I was growing up called The Growing Years. And Dave, for anyone listening who doesn't know this, which is pretty much all of you who might not know this, is six years younger than me. And those six years is not a huge gap. But when it comes to TV and movies, we do have a little bit of a gap. So Fred Savage was on The Growing... The Oh, the, Fred Savage, I know. Growing... Oh. Uh, no, what no, was it, it was, called? What would you do <laughs> if I sang out of tune? Okay, so we could look that up and put it in the show notes because probably, probably better than me wrong. just singing for the next twenty yeah. minutes. Thank yeah. you. At any rate, you could you could look up questions like that, and also what town is Inigo Montoya from? Which I could I didn't know that one. So at any rate, three lessons that we can take away from the Princess Bride and teaching, and to begin with. That first one I just mentioned, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. This brought up so many thoughts for me about teaching. It is so often that I find in teaching undergraduates that we have conditioned in our educational system for students to think about things in terms of having right and wrong answers. 
So a lot of times I find students, they just want to memorize the words that either the professor is saying or that they're reading in the textbook, and they think that's going to be their key to learning in college. And of course, there is far too many words that a professor is going to say, or that there are far too many pages in those textbooks to have that be an effective strategy, even if you were only aiming toward earning grades. But of course, those of us that teach in higher education, we want more than the grade. We want to help equip people for what they're going to encounter in the world. And so a couple of thoughts in terms of this, we need to be thinking about our own use of vocabulary. I have met with many professors and and worked with them and coached them to help them think about their vocabulary and to try to try to think back with beginner's mind, which is really challenging to do, but what it would be like to be thinking about your area of expertise, your discipline for the first time and, and being able to break those things down. And sometimes we'll do it inadvertently. I know for myself, I teach a sales class as a part of our marketing curriculum and I might mistake and use words like leads, sales leads, and then students don't know what that means. So if we're doing more asking questions in our teaching and having more of a dialogue with our students, that's where we can begin to see where there's a disconnect between the words that we're using and how students are interpreting them. So a couple of things, tools for people listening. One thing I encourage is to try to get more of our students doing more doodling in their note-taking in our classes. This is a whole discipline, a whole area of expertise called visual thinking or visualization. It's, It's a number of different ways that it's categorized. But I've got a link in the show notes that'll take you to all the bookmarks that I have saved on visual thinking, and you'll see some great examples there. Part of that is taking notes in a visual way. One of the things that I do for my introductory class is I build things called pen casts. And a pen cast is where you're drawing with a pen, but it's a specially designed pen that allows you to record audio with it. And the audio is synced up with your writing. So you can can almost give a little mini lecture. I try not to make these too long, but I think about a visual drawing I could do that could help students then remember better what I'm saying. Just one example is I have four fundamentals of business as one of my first lectures and in intro to business, and I draw four different buildings. And they're right next to each kind of skyscraper type things. And then inside of the windows of the building is one drawing for each one. So one example is entrepreneurship. And on that one, I draw a light bulb on that side of that building so that students, oh, entrepreneurship, ideas. Oh, okay. So it it helps them without them realizing it because a lot of times they think notes have to look like Cornell notes. And that's, I actually really benefited a lot from Cornell notes. So I'm not putting them down, but another means for helping students synthesize learning is by helping them draw more. And there's actually research out there that says even if students just doodle, if they're doodling flowers, butterflies, it does not even matter. It actually activates their brain more and the retention is higher, even if the doodling is not on the subject that's being talked about. Yeah, I think that there's so much here that we, we, we could do a whole show just on this and probably we should at some point. I think the key is, is getting out of that typical, I stand in front of the room and I talk about really big words and people write them down and try to memorize mm-hmm. them. And so I think the pen casts is really a neat, innovative thing I've seen you do and students really resonate with that really challenges 
you as an instructor to think about it in a different way to describe it that is going to be a little simpler for people to understand. And I, I know we spend a lot of time in our training business of trying to encourage presenters in the business world to get away from using things like acronyms and jargon and words that their audience isn't going to understand. So if you can get, you know, look at it from their perspective, I think that that's really helpful. And, and, and I have to say that I think some of the obstacles of this too come from students. I know teaching a couple of graduate classes a year, I don't go into a classroom and lecture for 45 minutes or an hour or whatever it is about what was in the book. I go on the assumption people have read it, and I want people to have a a, a, a richer dialogue in the classroom. So I'll, I'll a lot of times just pose questions and we'll talk about it. And there are students who do not like that. Mm-hmm. They they want like where's the PowerPoint with all of the terms and what's the key points we need to know, and I I get pushback on that sometimes, and I tell people up front, you know, hey, you can get that from the book. This the classroom is the chance to have a dialogue, and let's talk about. It from a real life experience and how you'd apply it to your workplace, and that's a little easier to do at the graduate level than it sometimes is at the undergrad level. But, uh, but whatever it is you're doing, whether it's dialogue, whether it's something visual, of getting out of that traditional, um, you know, we have this all knowing faculty member that stands up there and uh, deposits information into the brains of the people listening. There are t- there's a time and a place for that kind of a methodology, but it is one piece of a larger puzzle of learning. The next one is the ever classic quote from The Princess Bride, as you wish. And listeners might remember that's what the main character would say all of the time to the main female character was as you wish. And that was his way of telling her that he loved her. And this one is really to me, we want to be paying attention to our students' wishes, paying attention to their dreams and recognizing and helping them see that in order to achieve their dreams, it's going to take a lot to get there. If you think about the Princess Bride, he had to go through the forest and fight the R-O-U-S-S's, and he had to do a number of sword fights. There's an awful lot of sword fighting that goes on in the Princess Bride in order to get there, and our students have to go through so much. In a past episode, I talked about that student who comes to mind so often for me, whose dad was dying of cancer during a semester. I have had a number of other students who have had parents pass away either right before school or or during. I mean, it's just unbelievable difficult times that students have to go through. And it has been so rewarding for me to tell you. I mean, that's I'm giving, using an extreme example there. That's not, of course, a common thing. But to me, that's some of the worst things that happen. And what is nice to see now is I don't have any example of any of those students who I've seen go through such devastating things where today now, five, 10 years later, there's not at least some good that came out of a horrific situation in the sense of none of them just stayed where they were in life and never you know, never finished school. All of them finished college successfully through a, a tremendous group of faculty and staff who came together and helped them and supported them during an incredibly difficult time in their lives. So there's a couple of words that come up for me here that that you will find a lot in the academic literature for teaching, and that's building grit, 
and building resilience and how crucial that is for our students today. Psychology Today had a definition. Resilience is that ineffable quality that allows some people to be knocked down by life and come back stronger than ever. Rather than letting failure overcome them and drain their resolve, they find a way to rise from the ashes. Psychologists have identified some of the factors that make someone resilient. Among them, a positive attitude, optimism, the ability to regulate emotions, and the ability to see failure as a form of helpful feedback. And that's the end of that quote. And grit is a word that is becoming such a part of the literature on human motivation and success that more and more researchers are starting to find that things like resilience and grit really are the difference maker between whether someone is able to work through challenges in life and, and ultimately you know get to the goals that they want to, or whether someone stumbles and is unable to recover from those. And um, I don't know the literature well enough to know you know specifically how they make the distinction between those two words but a, but there are a lot of similarities of you know the ability to develop that skill where you can respond and work through a very challenging and difficult situation to anyone listening when i was in college this is in the early 90s at chapman university here in orange california and as an undergrad I was I was just an average student. I mean, I, I had a decent GPA. I tended to get A's in classes that were in my major and C's in classes that weren't. I didn't have any aspirations for grad school. I probably couldn't have even told you what that was at the time. And so I think I try to think back often to what it was like for me in school because I think I'm probably pretty much going to fit an, an average student if there is such a thing. And also think back to what it is now that I still carry all these years later from my experience as an undergrad. We recently had one of the professors, an economics professor there retire, and we got to go hear him give his last lecture. And that was so funny for me to think back to his econ class, because what I remember about econ I could the <laughs> the only thing I can remember from that class taking out of it this is terrible but but was the idea of that we don't own the the sky and the air and how when we think about resources and scarce resources that there are things that are easier because we actually own them like cars and and things but but then there's all these things we don't own so he was I remember contrasting about regulation versus the self-imposed regulation that comes from an economic system like capitalism, but I could never have actually articulated it like that back then. And then the other thing I remember is, this is what I remember more than anything was he used to lock the door. So it wasn't just don't come late to my class. It was, yeah, good luck because you're not getting in. If you if you come even a minute late, he would lock the door. I'm sure there's some fire code issue with that today. But, but I remember occasionally he'd forget to lock the door and someone would come in and sit down and, oh, ho, 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 you did not want to be that person. <laughs> so I was grateful that my mom had always taught me to be a pretty timely, prompt person because that, that, I, I would have been, that would have been difficult for me if I had been called attention to like that for not being on time. So I think, I think back to him as really being over the years, probably better at building resilience and grit than he than he probably was at teaching econ and part of that's just the nature I think of the subject and the maturity level and what people are thinking about at that age I don't know but I, but certainly those were the lessons that as we went to his last lecture uh, so many former students were there and shared their stories of him and if I think back to the stories that were shared that day so many of them were tied to 
to that, that, that sense of discipline and rigor and you better get it together kind of thing. Well, and it's interesting you bring up economics. Um, and I, I don't have the literature to cite from this, but I, I know that um, among economists, one of the things that they would say is that a college degree is one of the things that separates people, you know, figuring out who has the grit and resilience in order to be successful in the workplace and those that don't. So it's not even so much about the knowledge that you gain getting an undergraduate degree, um, but it's it's the ability to demonstrate that you can follow through on something for four years and reach an objective and work through the challenges and the obstacles that everyone works through to achieve an undergraduate degree. And I know there's uh, there's a subset of economists that claim that, that that's the that's one of the biggest screening points of, of figuring out if someone has that ability to do that. It um, comes up a lot in human resources too. Well, I would say to people who major in something very specific like theater, for example, it can be difficult to express in a resume how theater major is going to translate into, for example, working in an accounting department. So let's, I don't want to oversimplify things, but for some of the majors that are more generalist type majors, there is that screening that says, Hey, this person got through four years and was able to fulfill a long-term goal. Now that's where things like internships come up as the important thing for us to be encouraging our students to do. And in our, in our programs, always figuring out a way to help our students have those practical hands-on experiences while they're in, whether this is an undergrad or a graduate program, the next and last lesson from the Princess Bride about teaching is beware of R-O-U-S-S's. And for those of you who haven't seen the movie or it's been a while, these are those rodents of unusual size. And in academia, what I want to share about this is there are definitely faculty personalities of unusual size that we should be aware of there is such a, surely you just <laughs> there is such a dynamic of power in academic institutions and sometimes it's hard to recognize other times it's not i mean the clear thing is there's this power dynamic between am i a faculty member or am i staff and the big great divide and sometimes faculty really like to flaunt that the other thing that some faculty like to flaunt is I have tenure, you don't. So there's that big tenure dynamic. Tenure is the only thing, it's the strangest institution to me still. And while I really think it has tremendous benefits and I'm not, this is not the time we're going to actually go through and debate tenure and it's, it's good, good and bad aspects. But it, it is such an unusual thing for me as someone who worked in human resources for so many years to realize that in academia, that's the only job I can think of that the day you start is the day you start down your path of if you don't get hired in the next five years or however many years it is for tenure, seven years, you're fired. I mean, that is that is the strangest thing. And, and very little feedback is often given to faculty members along the way. So you see them at that last stretch where things can have changed. I mean, you don't have to go farther than the headlines of the Chronicle to see examples of this happening. I just saw it last week again, a lawsuit that came up. I won't say the name of the institution because when you're listening, it may not be in the week, but go look up there. There'll be other examples of something that's gone wrong. And I mean, it's just really a strange dynamic. But- I hope I hope you explore the tenure question on the show here at, at some point in more detail because it is really a uh, uh, there's there some wonderful reasons to have tenure in higher education institutions, and it is a very 
at, at looking at it more from an outsider, I, I've taught adjunct for years um, at, a, at a few universities, but, but as a business person primarily, it is an odd system um, in a lot of ways looking at it from the outside. And I know you've, you know, you've had your experiences with it too. And so I'm, I'm really, uh, I think that'd be an interesting thing, especially for those listening who are in the stages of going through that process of, you know, what are some ways to navigate that and what's kind of the ways to think about that in a really healthy way, given the system, what it is, but it does create some really interesting power dynamics among faculty in particular. Yeah, and it's not just tenure. If you're listening and you already have tenure or you're in an institution that no longer or never had a tenure type system, there still are all these power dynamics. And one of the things we'll see in some academic institutions is a culture of learned helplessness. And a lot of that can feel like the tension between faculty and administration and feeling like I have these ideas, I have things I can offer, but it doesn't matter because decisions have already been made. I mean, there's all these things having to do with power in organizations. I think are crucial to be aware of. Now, a couple couple notes. There are a couple of researchers, French and Raven, who all the way back in 1959 identified five bases of power in organizations for individuals. And so it isn't just power, tenure versus not, or I'm a chair, I'm a dean, or not. I could see people chuckling that are chairs going, we have the least power of anyone. <laughs> Sorry, chairs. <laughs> oftentimes in academia, the chair has the title, but even oftentimes feels that real helplessness in that position. But nonetheless, there's this legitimate power because my title says I have authority to do something. But there are other types of powers that can show up. There's expert power. There's really just referent power that says, I admire you and I I honor what it is that you do and the contributions and I want to learn from you. That's a type of power someone can can earn in academic institutions. A committee that makes decisions about where resources goes, there's another source of power that's important to understand in academia. So we've got these bases of power to be aware of and that all of us have the ability to gain more power. We all do. It just may not come in the ways in which we're used to seeing power show up in our own past lives and organizations. That is, uh, so to be aware of it and then to wanting to remember we all can be corrupted by power. And so we want to be using the power that we have been afforded in organizations to influence toward, toward good. There's a game that a lot of times people play in understanding culture in organizations and how power works. It's called the power game. And so it might show up for some of you in the area of sociology, it could show up in organizational leadership. And Dave, I believe you've played the power game before. I play it regularly with a graduate class I teach on uh, group dynamics yeah. and conflict. And But have you played it yourself? Have you been a participant in the power game? I actually never, I've been an observant okay. participant, but I've never actually been a part of one of the groups in the game. So how it works is that everyone gets a slip of paper that says you're either top, middle, or bottom. There are, of course, variations on this game, but that's essentially what it is. You just get a slip of paper, top, 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 middle, bottom. And then there's some sort of resource that's given out. Sometimes it's cash, sometimes it's food, whatever it is, but there's a scarce resource that a largest percentage of it is given to the tops, a small portion of it's given to the middles, and of course, none of it's given to the bottoms. And then with very little structure, which frustrates the heck out of some people who are players in the game, with very little structure, it's work it out. And I think so, the problem with the power game is to distance ourselves and say, oh, I, this, 
I, you know, I'm not affected by power. It's just like my students in marketing who say they're not affected by brands. Oh, I'm completely, oh no, I don't care about brands. And then we start going, whenever people say, let's look at what clothes you're wearing. Let's look at your purse or whatever. Let's look at your phone, your watch. <laughs> and, and, and to help people discover we are all affected by power. And so the, the key to something like the power game is to raise our own self-awareness, not to start pointing fingers at other people. Oh, look at how that person responded to power by how each one of us can respond to feelings of powerlessness as well as power. There's a phrase in the organizational behavior circles that if you put a good person in a bad system, the system will win every time. Mm. And, um, I, and I do think that's mostly true, not always, systems do have a, a lot of influence on us. And so even if we think we are immune from these types of things, just by nature of working in a larger organization where these power dynamics are there means that we will be affected by them. So I think a, a good starting point for many of us is to um, take a look at some of these power dynamics, You know, check out the show notes here for more of the details, of course, and to just recognize how that's true for you and in your institution and in your work and how that shows up and how you utilize those things both for, for good and for evil because <laughs> we all do we all um we all fall into that to some extent and to the extent that we're aware of that it will help to navigate it in a smart political way um and you know organizational politics that terms thrown around a lot is as a negative thing, but but organizational politics can be used for really good things too and really positive things. And so, utilizing politics and power in order to uh, drive a result that's helpful for you, for your students, and for the organization can be a really a really powerful way to look at this. This is the part in the show where each of us shares an ed tech tool. So I'm going to start with mine. I just discovered a student had told me to go look at this tool. And I thought, oh, it's another one of those. I, I don't even have time. Oh, yeah, I've heard of it before I read about it. Okay, great. I moved on. <laughs> okay, for some reason, I got there again yesterday. It's called Haiku Deck. And it's unbelievable. I had to go back to the student. He's gra since graduated, but I had to go back and say, I didn't listen to you the first time. I should have. This thing is amazing. So Haiku Deck is an online web-based tool that lets you build presentations. But back to our earlier point we want our presentations to be much more visual than we typically see because that's what's going to help with retention for our students. So we want to be focusing more on images that will help drive point drive our points home and very little text on the slide. And the wonderful thing about Haiku Deck is how easy it is to find images and they are images that are already covered under the Creative Commons system and they automatically save the citation for the photograph too with it. So you're you're adhering to and modeling for your students under copyright law. And so I mean, it's just fabulous that you can do that. And then of course, if they don't have the picture that you want up there, you can also upload your photos. If you happen to be someone who's on Facebook, you can connect it to Facebook if you want, connect it to Twitter, connect it to Instagram. So you've got all your sources of photos there. I'm just listing in a couple of the services, actually a bunch you can hook it up with. And then you can build charts in there easily and they're gorgeous PowerPoints. I, I'm saying, I'm using the word PowerPoint, but what they are are slides, which you can then display there within Haiku Deck. It works just like a slide-based tool. You can hit play and save all your, your shows there. You can export it to PowerPoint 
or to a number of other formats. So Haiku Deck is fabulous. I'd encourage people to check it out. Dave, what's your ed tech tool? Well, I, can I say something about that? Sure. First of all, uh, you know, you mentioned copyright and we should do or, or do a show at some point on copyright in the classroom because I think that that's something that, um, you know, there's different rules about using things in a classroom than there is in the real world. And I think a lot of faculty never really have that dialogue with students about the differences and distinctions. And I think there's a lot to be said for having that dialogue uh, with people. So my tool is Pinboard. And um, what Pinboard is, is it is a link it's a link uh, management system. So say you're trying, say you're find something online that you find of interest, you may want to use for a class or for research down the road. Um, you can save the link into Pinboard. Uh, there's another service that's very similar to it called Delicious. In fact, I think you may have mentioned it on a previous show, Bonnie. Um, and what it is is a service that just basically allows you to save links, tag them, and you can, to the extent you want, give other people access to your account to see what you've tagged. So anytime that I am online researching something and I see an article that would be of value to students for a particular class or clients for a particular um, workshop or training, I will tag it for that topic or sometimes that particular class code. And then whenever I'm running that class next or working with that client, I'll pull up that, that class code or I'll pull up that topic and it gives me a great starting point for my research. And the thing I like about Pinboard is that it will also archive, uh, if you pay a little bit of money, I think it's like 25 bucks a year, it'll archive all of those articles as well. So if the original article disappears off the web, it still is in the database there and you can still get access to it. So it's a great way to organize your online reading um, and, and information and research. And I use it pretty much daily, uh, these days. So we'll actually put a link in the show notes to my personal pinboard account. So you can see what I've tagged up there and everything's publicly available. I'm glad that you mentioned that about the classes too, Dave, because I'll do that. I do the topics too. So I've got one, which I linked to already in the show notes on visual thinking, but then I'll oftentimes link it to the class number too. So I'm, yeah. I'm going to be teaching a number of sections of our introduction to business class here for undergraduates in the fall. So I have my delicious.com slash Bonnie208 slash BUSN114. And when I go to start prepping that class, that's in my checklist of things to address and go and look and find inspiration there. It's exactly the way I do it for, mm -hmm. for my classes too. It's almost like uh, you're brilliant because you, you do know, it the same we way. We both I do. must be. I'm thinking must this be. must be what it is. The Wonder Years, by the way. Oh, the Wonder Years. That That's the what it was. That was a great show. <laughs> Fred Savage, by the way, for anyone who's wondering what we're talking about. I love Fred the Wonder Savage Years. was in a great show called The Wonder Years. Thank you so much for listening today. We are just getting started with teaching in higher ed and would love to hear from you. With the podcast, not the actual Yes, <laughs> the podcast. I've been doing the teaching for a while. Would love to hear from you on questions that you have, on input that you have. You can find in the show notes all of the different ways to connect with us. We're looking forward to doing a Q&A show coming up here in the future. So would love to have some recorded or written questions from people that you have. And teachinginhighered.com slash feedback for that, right? Yes. Thanks. See you soon. 